Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We are exploring the digital revolution, the massive impact it is having on every phase of our lives, and certainly in the business world. And one of the people who's got such great, deep, forward-looking insights into what's happening where two formerly far apart worlds are meeting, manufacturing and the industrial sector and the digital economy are coming together is our regular monthly guest and friend, Tony Uphoff, the CEO of Thomas. Tony, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Hey, Bob, thanks very much. Great to see you. I hope you've been well. All good here, Tony, all good. And I just want to say, you know, we, we don't see a lot of people in ties and I think you look terrific. Bob, thank you. Uh, as I noted before we went on air, I had a previous engagement, and as I was going to take the tie off, I thought, no, no, Bob and his audience deserve the respect of the once a quarter when I wear a tie. So, by gosh, <laughs> I thought I'd keep it going. Well, Tony, thank you. You you are you are wearing it well, as they say. And uh, thank you, sir. Tony, you know, one thing I just want to mention here, and then you, as always, you've got some great ideas you wanted to chat about is um, the big thing that probably the last four, five, six months that I've been talking about a lot with Cloudwares is this surge of all the big tech companies into this category of industry clouds, right? Industry specific yeah. solutions. And I guess to one extent or another, I've been a little bit surprised that along with you know, the usual suspects like retail and consumer packaged goods and financial services and healthcare, manufacturing is one that all of these companies seem very, very eager to get into. And I guess perhaps I shouldn't have been surprised by it because some of the things that you've been telling us on a regular basis just show about this confluence of, you know, the manufacturing sector and digital technology is just un unlike anything anybody could have imagined. Yeah, and, and you know, Bob, we have been talking about it, and I, I, I think like most situations in life, right? You know, irony tends to really open your eyes to things, and and so I, I think it is, it has gone past the simplistic irony of wait, manufacturing? What do you mean? That's a growth market. And I think most people today realize that manufacturing, um, their view of it has been pretty dated. And through the use of primarily digital and advanced technologies over the last 20 to 25 years, you've seen um, an acceleration of U.S. and North American manufacturing particularly. And so I think the days of manufacturing has been all uh, outsourced and is purely offshore. American is not a manufacturing economy. Th those things are, are, are not only not true, you're actually seeing a, a bit of a realignment there. So you know, you're bearing down on close to a $2.8 trillion manufacturing economy in the United States. And it is uh, growing again. And primarily, Bob, again, the, 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 the twin, twin dynamics, right, of technology that's always a, a driver of these things, but also globalization. And in this case, globalization, where we're starting to see now what the industry refers to as reshoring which for your audience, we've talked about this before, it's exactly what it sounds like. This has been happening over the better part of about 10 to 12 years, slowly and then accelerating. And this is in a, you know, a situation where a, um, a manufacturer brings manufacturing from an offshore environment back onto North American soil. <clears throat> and there's a lot of reasons this is happening. And, and, and it's a fairly complicated you know, scenario but it is primarily based on advanced manufacturing technology, which is making these companies far more effective on the global stage and far more competitive. 
There's also been a rethinking, Bob, of how to manage a supply chain and how do you get your supply chain that last mile closer from shorten the distance between manufacturing and the customer sets. And so those dynamics are really driving a lot of this stuff, but it is, um, as I've said on your show before, Bob, it is not an understatement to say this is a renaissance in North American and, and particularly uh, American manufacturing right now. Uh, Tony, you know, you, you talked about some big numbers there with the manufacturing and industrial markets. And I know that one detail you passed along uh, the investments that some manufacturing companies are going to have to make in order to sort of complete or fulfill that promise of reshoring. That, that's some, some heavy numbers. So let me let me unpack that, Bob. And if I get a little too wonky or geeky, you know, cut me off never, here. But never. So, so this idea of reshoring is accelerating. And the evidence of that is um, since March of 2020, when about 54% of US manufacturers were either actively embarking on reshoring or evaluating reshoring, that's gone up to 83% um, as of April of 21. So this is clearly accelerating. Again, a lot of reasons for that, but I think there's also a contributing factor here, Bob, is as we were talking about in an unrelated area before we started taping today, the pandemic has really changed a lot of thinking around, let's call it broadly speaking, supply chains. So I think the other contributing factor here, the reason reshoring is accelerating is, boy, the pandemic was either a very harsh wake-up call or a soft wake-up call that it's time to reevaluate re your supply chain. So 83% actively reshoring. Then when you look at that number, according to the Association for Manufacturing Technology, they, their chief, um, uh, I love his, his title, I wanna get it straight here. It's um, Chief Knowledge Officer, a guy named Pat McGibbon. And in essence, he's their economist. He's unpacked the acceleration of reshoring and what's happening there and basically outlined that if we were to move 25% of manufactured goods that are currently being manufactured in just China to the US, which ultimately would happen if reshoring continues at the pace that it's at, this would require somewhere around a 400 to $500 billion investment in technology in US manufacturing. So in essence, they've been able to identify still some level of technical debt and to be able to accommodate that acceleration. And it, and it really starts to now open your eyes, Bob, in a couple of different areas. One is for an awful lot of your audience, if manufacturing isn't in the top two or three for a vertical cloud strategy, you, you may want to rethink that and, and get a hold of some data and understand you know, how you can start to really go help this. But you know, on Wall Street, they use that, that phrase, make the trend your friend. This is an irrefutable trend. And so I think for a lot of tech companies, they're learning about how they can help manufacturing. Not all of your listeners would be uh, producing advanced robotics technology, let's say, or other things. But what we're finding is, particularly as we get a little closer to the um, industrial internet of things, a lot of enabling technologies are really built in and around cloud-based applications and infrastructure. And so that's a big from to shift, right? That's starting to, to play there. And it, it's exciting because I think it says a lot about to the way you open the program, we're seeing these two worlds kind of converge from 
these incredibly, you know, uh, scalable advanced technologies to an industry that, to a great extent, you know, the average American maybe doesn't think of as combining with advanced technology, but boy, is it is it now happening? And and I think it it holds a huge huge opportunity for the uh, um, uh, the economy, particularly you know in the United States and uh, and North America. So, and Tony, I want to just uh, be sure that, you know, that big number, I'm going to call it roughly half a trillion dollars or 25% reshoring of 25% of the goods that are now made in China. If the 25% were brought back to the U.S., that half a trillion dollars, that's not total investment in everything like plant and machinery and so on. That's technology investment, right? The, the estimate by the Association of, of Manufacturing Technology is that's a technology investment. Now, in fairness, Bob, I, I'm not completely privy to how they unpack technical debt. You know, how much of this is what you and I might consider on the factory floor? How much of this, as you and I have spent a lot of time discussing, there's a, a digital transformation of the sales and marketing functions and let's call them front office functions in manufacturing taking place at the same time. But, but I think this is literally enabling technologies. And, and think of all the different components here. Look at what's happening. And, um, you know, we talked about the, the industrial internet of things, but look at what's really starting to happen in additive manufacturing and all the different things that we're seeing that are really transforming the way manufacturing can not only produce, but the business models they can create, how they can connect with customers, where they connect with customers, where in the supply and value chain they engage with customers. So again, I, I, I believe that number is, is almost purely technology. How broadly distributed those the, the individual tech pieces are, I, I don't have all the detail on that, but I'm, but I'm happy to share as I get more with you in the future. No, Tony, so no, I, I, that's, that is something. And you know, when you, you, you talked about that thing, not just sort of factory floor and supply chain investments, but also sales and marketing that you were describing, and then Tony, the whole thing about uh, you know the cybersecurity hit on the pipeline recently calls into question too the whole thing of the um, operational technology where IT meets OT. I think that stuff is going to surge into this. So these modern new plants that companies are building, right? What, you know, where who is it that stands up with some magic wand or whatever and says this stuff over here is OT, that stuff is IT, and we'll keep the walls up there. It just, especially the sorts of modern investments you're describing, Tony, these modern types of factories and industrial facilities. I, I don't think, I don't think we're going to have that old fashioned split OT over here and IT over there. It's, that's, that's a, that's yesterday's world. Well, and it's interesting because I think to your exact point, Bob, I don't think a lot of the um, KPIs or measurements or, or previous data that we've tracked are keeping pace with the new world that you've just been describing. Mm -hmm. So as an example, if you look at manufacturing jobs, the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks traditional on the factory floor manufacturing jobs. Mm -hmm. If I bring in technology and I take three jobs and transition those jobs from traditional manufacturing jobs to tech jobs on the factory floor, we don't you know, our, our data systems aren't aligned yet. So it looks like it's a net loss of three jobs. Yeah. And, and we really struggle with this. I, I think I gave as an example, we did some analysis 
um, of the United States Air Force and, and how they're starting to use a lot of drones, not a big surprise to your listeners at all, but we were kind of fascinated on the economics of that and also the jobs. And what was really incredible is to fly a very sophisticated fighter jet. There's fundamentally about seven people that are full-time in job, you know, in, in jo involved in flying that jet. When you look at a drone, you think, well, gosh, there went seven jobs because we just need the drone and we need an individual pilot. When you factor in the development of the technology, the software, all of the different things, there were upwards of 40 jobs of somebody flying an individual drone, which is kind of an amazing, you know, and again, this is for, you know, military purposes. This isn't, you know, me messing around with a drone in my front yard, but um, it, it, it does make you think about kind of what you're touching on, Bob, is as we, as we envision the world that we're in today, I think a lot of the struggle we have, particularly in a market like manufacturing, is we don't have the measurements. And we also, in many cases, don't have the language to describe kind of what, what, what we're finding and what we're seeing in a lot of these businesses going forward, which is again, a fantastic opportunity. But I think, you know, whether it's the, you know, the government and labor of uh, Bureau statistics and other things, we're behind the curve and seeing how fast a lot of what you and I are describing is actually moving. Yeah, yeah, Tony, I, um, I don't mean this too, is like to come across as a cheerleader and all this, but I think it's parallel to something else I believe you and I have touched on here, which is this notion that the, the cloud and all that it's going to, the role that it's going to play in this revolution, the renaissance, as you called it, uh, that's taking place right now. It's not just a direct replacement thing, right? Like, oh, I had some old stuff over right. here, cost me $2 million, I'll put in $2 million worth of stuff. Uh, worth of cloud stuff that'll last a little longer, go a little faster. It isn't that at all. So you start to do these sorts of things like you described, right, with the drone. And instead of, you know, six or seven jobs with the plane or the jet, now you've got upwards of 40 with this other thing. And all of those people probably involved in some ways with data and the spin out of this and analytics and this perception then of what is possible now as we go beyond that. So, uh, I think as you know, you've described it, the additive manufacturing, digital twins, the use of mixed reality, uh, micro manufacturing sites and so on like that. I think we're just beginning to get a glimpse of what could happen if we're able to marry together some of the great traditions in some of these industries, particularly, you know, manufacturing with new technology. Yeah, and I think Bob, look, you know, you and I've had the extraordinary benefit of growing up at you know, these intersections where we were you know, in the room, if you will, as these massive market transitions would develop. And you know, the early days of the personal computer and local area networks and you know, the redefining of corporate you know, computing and, and how information flowed in businesses and all those types of things. One of the things that I think is hard to wrap your head around about what we're miss, you know, witnessing right now is the sheer scale that the technologies you're describing, Bob, are starting to drive. Mm -hmm. So as an example, we're casually throwing out numbers um, from companies like Apple and Amazon, as though these are common things, you know, as though it's common to talk about a, you know, $25 billion quarterly profit. Tony, that's a great point. Let's come back to that in just a second, but first a quick word from our sponsor, BMC. BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? 
That's when systems are intelligent by learning from markets where automation is paramount yet effortless and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A game. Though, you know, and, and when you actually just look at the sheer scale of operation that's going on there and what's actually happening to suggest we've never seen something like this would be a dramatic understatement. But, but I think part of what we're now seeing and you're touching on is these extraordinary technologies are starting to enable levels of scale that we, I think we just, it's hard to wrap your head around. And so, you know, it, it, I, I, I challenged a group, uh, you know, inside of our own company recently on, on Apple's recent earnings as they said, you know, start to break that down by per unit, right? You know, an expensive product for Apple is a couple of grand. So break that down by a per unit basis and think about the scale of what they're actually doing in the marketplace. And, you know, I, again, I say that only because I think a lot of the technologies you're touching on, Bob, well, some people might think, well, hey, cloud's been around for a decade. And before that, it was just shared computing. Ah, you know, come on, this, this isn't any big deal. We are seeing a step change in terms of the way technology can impact um, businesses, let alone broader aspects of, of life. We've never seen this before. I mean, certainly not in my lifetime. And, and I would argue, you know, a, a, a fundamental change like this hasn't, hasn't been seen in probably over a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, Tony, I, I have to mention this. There was a, I'm ashamed that I'm, I'm gonna bring this up and not really know what I'm talking about, but it's not the first time, certainly. Uh, but I saw at a big industry event a couple of years ago, there was a company called Carbon, small, fast-growing company. And I think it was the chief technology got up and he said, uh, our model is to do away with the notion of inventory. He said, right, between, you know, just your inventory stored in the cloud. And he, they were making physical goods. And he said, you know, that supply chain stuff or how much of this you have on hand. He said, we'll either solve that, you know, through improvements in supply chain and predictive analytics and predictive demand uh, correlated up and down the, the chain there. Or he said, with this additive manufacturing. So I don't know how well that company is or isn't doing right now, but it was one of those things that said, you know, holy crap, is this one of those cases where if I can imagine it, it could come true? Uh, if it doesn't come all the way true, what if you could get 50 or 60 or 70% yeah. of the way there? And I know when you were talking about those things of scales, when Walmart used to come out sometimes the quarterly earnings, I try to think about, you know, these numbers are so big. So how much is that a month? How much is that a week? How much is that a day? Yeah. How much is that an hour? And it, it sort of brought it into sense. And then you see some of these relatively small companies, right? Look at Moderna, right? Now yeah. globally, yeah. They're, a, they're a tiny company, right? But they were able with the cloud to operate at a global scale you know, along the, you know, sort of the same parameters as you know some of the biggest pharmaceutical manufacturing companies that have decades of experience. Well, and, and Bob, as we said, look, we're living in an era where you know we're on the right side of getting folks vaccinated these days. At, at least in the United States, we've got a long ways to go in in India and Brazil, unfortunately. But you know, hopefully, the United States can help with with some of the efforts there. But these vaccines wouldn't have been developed without access to things like cloud technology. Within the speed with which they've been developed, you know, so the old decade to 12 months, that didn't just happen because people worked harder. 
right? There, there, there's new enabling technologies. By the way, before I forget my, my great new story, you're gonna love this. So one of the supply chain stories we were tracking because we look at all the data of what's being sourced on our platform. We notice a, a very significant lift in sourcing around food processing equipment. Not surprising, you, you've had a lot of people you know, ordering food at home, you've got the influx of ghost kitchens, you've got restaurants that are having to do, you know, send out food and all that kind of stuff. And as well, more people cooking at home than, than normally in a cycle. So all those things coming together. But what was fascinating is we discovered there's a significant shortage of chicken and that the price of chicken is, is starting to go up. And what that's done is further accelerated the purchase of alternative proteins. Now, I'm not an expert on alternative proteins. Apparently, there are all kinds of different ones these days. And they're basically plant-based proteins that have you know, look and taste not unlike either chicken or, or beef or, or whatever. So my latest favorite one is linking it back to additive manufacturing. KFC is experimenting with 3D printing chicken nuggets. So, so this is, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, so I, you look at this stuff and it's like, you know, not only does that sound way out there now, can you imagine if we've been having this conversation, you know, five, even five years ago, you'd be like, what do you mean by 3D printing? What is that? What are yeah. you talking about? And then you're talking about, so you're going to print food. <laughs> so walk me through how that's going to work. But all kidding aside, imagine to your point on this company, Carbon, imagine a point in time that's probably not too far down the road that, you know, as a consumer, you could walk up to a machine and mm. get some food that, ironically enough, could be, if not fresh, at least fresh, fast food yeah. that would actually be 3D printed. So, yeah, is that crazy? <laughs> Tony, I, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I wonder if big chicken is behind all this, right? And they're trying to <laughs> the market, boost the prices, own all these alternatives, right? We're going to find out that big chicken is behind all those alternative things. Bob, I think we had a trademark chicken gate and we had to explore <laughs> this one thoroughly. I, I think you're onto something. Well, Tony, with if we could use that, it's, it's a tremendous story, but you also wanted to talk a little bit about how uh, in some ways there's a, a break point sometimes between big data and big insights. And I wonder what, what do you, what's your thinking on that and how, how do you see that playing out? You know, it, it's interesting, Bob, and not a new topic. And, and we've talked about this on your program before. I, I think for certainly for me, as there is for many people, there, there's a, a heightened sense of irony that we've never had access to more data. Yeah. But is this the, the paradox of choice? What is it that I, I don't know that we're awash in insights? So we're awash in data, but I could argue that insights are getting even more difficult. And, and it, it is really just a fascinating dynamic. And so at, at our company, we've, we've expanded quite a bit in the data business and we've been hiring these remarkably talented PhD data scientists who have added a ton of you know, value to our company and business. And we've started to, to sell data sets into organizations that buy data to analyze, to make business a range of business decisions, including in investment decisions. And when you spend a little bit of time with them, what they'll, they'll talk about is signal. 
So, you know, can I find signal in your data? And it's interesting that I, I kind of started on a rant one day with our data science team about the exact topic you and I are talking about. It, and at some point they kind of looked at me like, you know, I, you know, yeah, this is sort of an obvious situation. And what I realized is they were actually far more comfortable with the, the difference between causation and correlation. And I think for many of us, right, the, we have so much data that what it's do is doing is it's surfacing a, a myriad of correlation to the data itself, which means I'm not sure if that's caused by the same yeah. thing that I'm looking at. But boy, I can see that, you know, the, the famous one I think I've used in your show before is, is you know, the, the, the rooster uh, crows at dawn, so therefore the rooster must make the sunrise. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, that, you know the, my economics professor used to use that as the example of, no, 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 that's a correlation, not a causation. And so it, it's, it's got me thinking, and, and I find that this is a, a pretty common conversation, Bob, these days with folks that are either in tech or tech-related businesses or like the manufacturing industry that we've been describing, Bob, as more and more data comes available, I, I think the need to really have a framework for determining, you know, is the, are these a set of correlations? And that's not bad. We might be able to make some business decisions out of a set of correlations, but if I don't have a framework to determine, you know, if they're correlations, that means therefore I'll pursue them this way versus, Hey, I think I found signal. I think I found that when this happens, it means that this, this, and this are about to happen. And that's a very different thing. And I think myself included, and, and probably should only speak for myself here. I realized, Bob, I, I think for an enormous chunk of my career, I probably spent more time wallowing around in correlation data without really taking the deeper dive Fairness, I didn't always have the tools to do it, to, to find signal, as they say, in the, in the hedge fund world. And I think this idea of you know, really driving towards what is the causation and, and perhaps determining causation, there are causation models you can use and all kinds of different things. But I think, Bob, it really, it, it really um, it requires a different mindset because I think in a funny way, we're more comfortable with correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Hey, uh, it looked like at Southland Corporation, based on the point of sale data, that when men came in at eight o'clock at night to buy diapers, they also bought a six pack of beer. So we're more comfortable with that kind of data. I'm not sure why that's happening. I'm not. It's clearly not a cause that when you buy diapers, it forces you to buy beer, nor vice versa. But hey, let's just move the diapers close to the beer uh, containers. You know, and that's actionable. You know, that's something we can do. But I think as our businesses get more and more sophisticated, this, this idea of noise to signal and, and, and also when is signal actionable and, and therefore predictive is really what I'm, I'm trying to say. So you can, you can see the, the stuff I've been geeking out on lately. But as I engage with a broad range of customers and uh, procurement professionals and manufacturers, it, it, this, this kind of... We have more data than we need, but boy, we lack signal. Seems to be a, a, a growing conversation. Um, Tony, let me ask, and I'm sorry if this is a naive question, but um, it, I, I wonder if one of the factors in there that 
is producing more correlation-based insights than causation is, um, you know, in so many companies, we had lots of information, but this was uh, fragmented, right? We had this from the procurement team, and we had another chunk from the design team, another chunk from the manufacturing team, another from logistics. And so they're operating in somewhat isolation, uh, you know, from each other. Maybe when we can start knocking down some of these silos and get that more of an end-to-end -end view, do you think that might be one of the factors that might give rise to more of a, a sense of the actual signal as you've yeah. described it? It's such a fantastic observation, Bob. I, I think without question, you're right. And I think take that a step further. If you think about silo mentality, if I'm in that silo, my first mission is to protect the silo. So any data I'm looking at should be promoting the silo. It's not about, oh, wait a second. Now, the more I look at that, maybe we should allocate more resources over here, right? Because the signal is showing me that I should go over here, right? So I think I think as usual, you are on to something there. I think that's, that is a huge, huge pon uh, um, component of it. I think the other thing that many of us do, Bob, is we tend to look at data through the lens almost purely of the day-to-day -day operations of our business, you know, almost like a daily P&L. And, you know, that, that's effective. It's required for every business leader. There's a, there's a logic behind that. But if that's the only way that you're looking at it, you can kind of lull yourself to, to sleep. If you're not looking at broader data sets or even trying to look at, you know, take for an example, you know, we were talking about the financial performance of Apple. If you were to even look at the full P&L, there's things that are floating above and underneath that P&L that are driving the causation of those results. Mm -hmm. And they're directly connected, but you might not think of them, yeah. you know, and, and, and they wouldn't show up on a balance sheet. They wouldn't show up in a cash flow statement. They wouldn't show up in a P&L. I guarantee you, uh, Tim Cook and the team are, are tracking those, those uh, data elements, though, and they know which ones are signal and which ones are, uh, are noise. But I, I, you know, go back. Your silo point is a really, really good one. Tony, the... Um you know, when you, you mentioned this about don't just look at it as a, an isolated issue, right? Or within the silo. Um, within the last few days, I was, I was talking to a friend who's had to make a big uh, sort of final presentation to a large bank in Australia. And the large bank in Australia said, we're all in, we know we got to do this digital transformation thing, but we got to be able to sell it to the board. And we don't, our premises, it has to be uh, sort of a zero sum equation. We would want to go through this digital transformation, but we cannot spend more on IT than we've been spending. So the guy went through this, you know, can we say it's a swap out of this for that? Or how about this for this? And I said, you know, you've covered all the bases there, but I would ask, is it not sort of trying to roar into the future guided by the rear view mirror to say that this is an IT decision, right? If you're a big yeah. bank and you choose yeah. not to go this direction, you know, how are you going to be able to compete going forward? Or the other side just might be to say, okay, uh, you know, it's an intractable problem. We're just moving money around inside the IT budget. It must really not be that important. Are you willing to take that risk and go into the future as a 20th century bank when all your competitors are doing other things. And so I, th I think this, this uh, 
and both the physical nature of the silos of the organization allows us in the absence of those silos to see the organization in a bigger way, a different way, maybe tilt our heads up and outward a little to the, to the marketplace, right? To the world of customers rather than our purely internal operations thing. And perhaps those are some of those points you've mentioned within Apple that the, the threads that aren't always visible, that they're there. It, it's such a brilliant observation, Bob. And I, I, I'd love to have a follow-up and see how the, the presentation turned out to, to, to the <laughs> yeah. board. But, you know, can you imagine, you know, forget the board for a minute. Can you imagine being in the room when a group of folks at Amazon, obviously Bezos was in the room, but a group of folks at Amazon said, hey, we want to actually spend more on technology infrastructure. So how the hell do we do that? Because we're already at X percent of revenues and boy, you know, Wall Street kind of is all over us for that. And we don't turn the profits. We're like, I get a crazy idea. Why don't we spend more and then turn that into a profit center? Why don't we make money off of our own technology directly by leasing that to other companies? And Again, not a new concept, but in the way that they did it, it it's literally a 180 degree head spinner. Yeah. You know, to, you're thinking, now the concept's not, not overly complex, but I'd be fascinated to know, and maybe one of your listeners that works at Amazon be willing to come on and, and talk to us about this, what level of debate went on and was the forcing function, I wanna spend more on technology. How could we do that? And is it just as matter as, hey, we're going to spend more as a percent of revenue or the aha moment was, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's a, a different way to, to, to look at this. Anyways, I, I, I think that kind of stuff's fascinating. And I, I, I agree with you. I think part of what we wrestle with in business today is whether those silos are by function or by product or business unit, we tend to take a very parochial view of these types of things. Hey, technology can never get above X percent of revenues or, you know, marketing can never go beyond, or boy, we're, we're not willing to go beyond X dollars to acquire a customer. Well, I don't know if you're, if your lifetime value of a customer is 10 years, how much do you make over those 10 years? Well, you may want to rethink that. Right. And, and I'm, I'm giving overly simplistic examples, but if you look at the companies that are really innovating, in the areas that you and I are talking about, Bob, it really is that they're able to take the market data that's available to everybody and, and data that they're looking at on their own and take a different mindset of how to apply that in order to, to in many cases, dominate markets. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tony, I love that. And I, I have to tell you, um, my final point on this is I was doing a, a sort of a panel discussion the other day and the uh, you know, the, the primary speaker was a guy, he is the uh, vice president of the secure global supply chain at Amerisource Bergen, which is one of the world's largest healthcare wholesale distribution companies. And as we were talking about, you know, what's different, not just because of COVID, but what's different this year from a year ago, you know, or, or two years ago, and where do you think things are headed? He said, uh, he said, well, one of the big things is, he said, we're getting bombarded with questions from all of our partners, our suppliers and our customers about DTC. Yep. And I was a little rattled and direct to consumer. All right. And, uh, and he, he was laughing. He said, it, it runs directly counter to what the name of our business or our traditional yep. business is. Wholesale. We don't sell 
to concern yep. me. But it's one of those people who said, yeah, I know you don't. Anyhow, how much would it... <laughs> and, and we, but we, we, we drag along some of these, these constructs and the outfits. And Tony, I, I really think, you know, that big question, I hope you keep banging on that. You know, why isn't big data yielding big insights? Because there, yeah. are, there are lots of reasons. And I don't think it's like you said, because the data is wrong or bad or something. I think it's how we choose to look at it, right? And if it gives us an answer we don't want, we, we you know, say, okay, now that's not the right answer. And you know, let, let's go on to the next subject. So uh, it, it's a great point. It's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. And Tony, I just want to say as we as we close up here, I want to give you the last word, but I also want to say I just I'm just really struck by just how sharp you look with that tie, and I hope you wear a tie every day. So, you know what I got to do is I got to pull out like an old Grateful Dead T-shirt or something for the next appearance. There's got to be a yin and yang here. I got to I got to find something to bring it together, but. Hey, Bob, I always love our, our conversations and thanks again for having us on. I, I, I think a couple, couple of things I'd mentioned wrapping it up. I, I think, um, you know, th these are incredibly exciting times, I think, in, in so many areas. And as the world starts to, 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 to bloom again, um, I, I think there's tremendous opportunity in, in certainly in the tech markets and the manufacturing markets, as we've talked about. Um, we are, are watching what's happening in other parts of the world. And I think, um, you know, America has a unique opportunity right now to play a broader global role to make sure that, that vaccines get to countries that are really in dire need of it right now. And, and if in all candor fumbled their, their management of, of vaccine, you know, evaluation and, and rollout. And, um, you know, we're, we're attempting to do what we can to encourage uh, you know, uh, private and public institutions to help out with that because there's there's a really really nice opportunity right now to do good by doing good, and and you know we're hoping that those things uh, you know come together out there. So, sure, agree with you, Tony, on that. That's a so it's a wonderful point. I guess that's you know whatever industry, whatever outlook we have, that's a, that should remain an absolute top priority for us. And thanks for reminding us of that, Tony. And. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. We always have a great time with you and you shed a lot of insights on things, uh, Thomas Net and the things you've got going on. It, if it's exciting now, man, just wait till a, a year or so from now as all this stuff really, really starts to uh, become mainstream. Thanks, Bob. I'll uh, look forward to seeing you next episode. All right, sir. Thank you, Tony. And folks, thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We're glad you could make the time. Hope springtime is treating you well. And uh, we, we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.